Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There was a time when Connecticut was leading the region in clean energy projects. That's not the case today. Coming up, we'll hear from reporter Jan Ellen Spiegel about the state's energy future. A long overdue report on Connecticut's energy strategy is expected to be released soon. We'll find out more later this hour. First, it's a full year into the presidency of Donald Trump. And tonight, he addresses Congress in his first State of the Union address. WNPR will bring you the speech live at 9 p.m. with anchored coverage from NPR News. Do you plan on listening or watching his address? What do you want the president to lay out as a priority for 2018? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Presidents often invite guests to their State of the Union address as one way to bring attention to certain policies or issues. Members of Congress, including Connecticut's delegation, have also invited guests tonight from their home districts. A local resident who will be there in person as a guest of Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro is Dr. Suzanne Lagarde. She's CEO of Fairhaven Community Healthcare. Uh, Dr. Lagarde, welcome to the show. Good morning. Tell us about your health center. How long has it been in the Fairhaven community? Who do you serve? So we've been in Fairhaven, which is a neighborhood in New Haven, uh, for about 48 years. Uh, We serve just over 18,000 primarily low to average income individuals, although certainly anyone who wants to seek care from us uh, are welcome. Uh, We uh, give a wide range of comprehensive services, all all aspects of primary care from peds to adults. midwifery. We also provide dental and behavioral health services, substance abuse uh, treatment. So a pretty comprehensive package. You're a federally qualified health center. Explain to our listeners what that means. So to be a federally qualified health center uh, means that we are recognized by the federal government to to achieve certain standards and to serve certain patient populations. Currently, there are about 1,400 health centers across the country. Uh, the, whole, the program was started back in the 1960s under the Lyndon Johnson administration. Uh, and in 2017, collectively, health centers served over 27 million uh, residents of the United States. These health centers you mentioned, including your own, uh, in limbo as you wait to see if Congress will allocate actually billions of dollars to help keep these health centers running. Explain to us uh, how, how, uh, how much you get and what is at stake in terms of finding out uh, whether and when you'll be able to get this money. So the funding we get has been relatively stable for a number of years and is actually divided into two buckets, if you, if you think of it fairly simplistically, but 70% of the federal fundings we receive, which is really to help uh, support the care we provide, including to uninsured and to those who are underinsured, um, that funding has to be re-approved re- 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 by Congress periodically. It, uh, it expired on September 30th, 2017. Congress failed to uh, act on it. it. It wasn't that they voted against it. They just didn't vote on it. Um, HRSA, which is the Division of Health and Human Services that we report directly to, had enough funding to carry us through more or less December. 
and then in, there was a continuing resolution in December that then up the that gave us additional funding through March 31st. After March 31st, every single health center in this country stands to lose 70% of their current funding. And to give you a little perspective on that, from my organization, that's $2.9 million, which is 14% of our budget. Um, this is staggering sorts of numbers, which will, uh, without question, across the country impact our ability to provide services. It's estimated that 25% of health centers may have to close their doors. Um, uh, access to care will be lim- will be lessened, and, and patients will have you know more difficulty in getting uh, the services they need. I mentioned you're a guest tonight at the State of the Union. Uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLara invited you. Um, as we noted at the beginning of the show, no one really has any idea what uh, President Trump will talk about uh, tonight. Uh, but obviously, uh, Congresswoman DeLauro has spoken with you in, in recent days about the need for these community health centers. Without these community health centers, where will these people go? What stress will it put on our health care system? So that's a very good question, and uh, of course, the the obvious answer for a large majority of the time will be they'll go to the emergency rooms, which is more costly care, less effective care. Um, the hospital association in throughout the country are supporting uh, the health centers because they realize that the impact on their emergency rooms will be so large that they too will struggle to uh, uh, keep up. So um, there's a huge downstream effect. Uh, there will be a significant job loss. Uh, it's estimated that across the country, uh, over 50,000 uh, people will lose their jobs. Uh, in Connecticut, that number is over 500. Uh, and we're talking not, you know, we're talking about the, a full spectrum of, of um, workers, including nurses and doctors. Uh, there's also a question about the Children's Health Care Insurance Program, or CHIP. Um, where will that money uh, come from, and will it be renewed? Can you talk a little bit about that? So that was renewed okay. in the, um, the last, on the January 9th uh, continuing resolution. CHIP was funded for another six years. Um, but the, the issue here for these kids is w- health centers are who take care of these kids for the most part. So although the funding for CHIP has been renewed, uh, if the uh, health center funding is, uh, is not renewed or significantly cut, uh, they're going to they're have problems with access like all the rest of our patients. Do you expect uh, health care will come up tonight, Dr. Lagarde? I sure hope so. There was interesting, I was reading yesterday, there was a poll, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who did the poll, but there was a poll that came out that showed that the number one um, uh, item that the country want, wanted the president to address was health care. And that it, it, it actually eked out jobs uh, and, and certainly was more significant than other issues that we know he, uh, he's likely to address, such as immigration. It was the number one issue. That was the Politico Morning Consult report, our survey yes, that I yes, think yes, you're mentioning. You're right, you're it was right. 59% of voters uh, who indicated they want to hear President Trump speak about uh, fixing the health care system um, in his uh, State of the Union address. Uh, this is where we live. On the phone with me, Dr. Suzanne Lagarde, CEO of Fairhaven Community Healthcare. You know, so often uh, the people that you're serving are low-income families, um, and we were just talking about uh, the CHIP program. Uh, again, something that's going on in communities across this nation is the opioid crisis. What kind of uh, services are you providing people with substance abuse issues? So we have a very robust um, uh, substance abuse program. We, we're actually uh, 
have two uh, uh, physicians who are boarded in addiction medicine in addition to other providers who have what's called a data waiver, which allows them to treat patients with opioid addiction with a certain drug called Suboxone. Um, so, uh, and we also have a full-time uh, substance abuse coordinator. We know that for this patient population, uh, the most important thing is to connect with them uh, where they are, when, they, when, they, when they're ready, uh, and the care coordinator sort of becomes their, their best friend and their best resource, and, and she's a key role in the whole program. So, so, and we also partner with a local, another local addiction uh, program called MOSS, which is Multicultural Ambulatory Addiction Services, which is uh, literally two blocks down the road from us in uh, Fairhaven. So we have a pretty robust um, opioid uh, program, and we, uh, you know, we're always open. Our doors are open all the time to anyone who, who, who seeks our, our services. Uh, we know that Connecticut's also been taking in a lot of people displaced uh, from Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Uh, New Haven is one of the cities that has seen a lot of evacuees uh, come to stay with family. Are these the people that you're also helping? Absolutely. So it, it, Fairhaven is physically located in a largely immigrant community, a largely Hispanic community. So we have seen the bulk of the uh, evacuees arriving in the southern Connecticut area. Um, and uh, we work very closely with uh, Junta for Progressive Action, which has been identified as the sort of main intake area for uh, arrivals to the New Haven area. And, I, and I'd like to point out to you and your listeners that if this uh, funding cliff, we call it a funding cliff, uh, is not addressed, it will affect uh, community health centers in Puerto Rico. So there are 20 community health centers in Puerto Rico who likewise would see 70% of their funding cut, which, as you can well imagine, they're struggling as it is with uh, infrastructure issues, uh, patients without you know, basic rudimentary uh, needs of their life, and to now be hit with a 70% cut would be catastrophic. What do you want to hear from the State of the Union address? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. It's President Trump's first State of the Union after a, a full year uh, in office. And again, tonight, uh, WNPR uh, will have that address live at 9 p.m. with anchored coverage from NPR News. I wanted to zoom out now to get some uh, perspective on uh, the very important issue of fixing um, the health care system in this country. Uh, joining us is Mary Agnes Carey, Senior Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Mary Agnes, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're hearing from one particular uh, group, uh, a woman who leads a, a community health center here in Connecticut. Uh, obviously, healthcare uh, very important um, in uh, her community, as well as getting necessary funds to keep uh, these health, federally qualified health centers open. Um, how likely is it the president will even talk about healthcare tonight, Mary Agnes? Well, it's thought that he won't focus on it. He might move to talking about his successes, for example, with passing the recent tax bill. Uh, infrastructure issues are very, very high on the list. I wouldn't surprise me if he talked about immigration. But if he does talk about health care, the thought is he might talk briefly about the opioid crisis. He might talk about how his tax bill got rid of the individual mandate, this requirement that most Americans have health insurance or pay a fine. And while it's not likely that Congress would return to an effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, it wouldn't surprise me if the president mentioned it because it's very, very popular with the Republican base. So health care is definitely not expected to get a lot of airtime tonight. 
You mentioned the opioid crisis. Uh, we know that uh, late last year, uh, President Trump declared uh, that a public health emergency. I believe it's been extended uh, recently, but it was a declaration. But what happened in terms of the kind of funding uh, that communities needed? Did anything come from that? Not so much. Uh, even members of the commission are calling it a sham. Um, some of them are saying it's a lot of talk and not a lot of action because he didn't call it a national emergency declaration. It wasn't that, so the money didn't come. And so I think if the, the president is going to talk about opioids tonight, he's got to lay out a specific plan of action and funding. Money matters everywhere, but especially in Washington. When you have municipalities and states all over the country struggling with this epidemic, which I believe the latest estimate was something like 62,000 deaths a year right now is what's happening with this. If the president does decide to talk about opioids, he has to be extremely specific and move the issue forward because he's gotten so much criticism over his commission and that, you know, and, and his declaration stopping short, he had a commission that made recommendations. Not many have been enacted and he is getting a lot of heat for it. Uh, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. We saw in the last year uh, Republican uh, lawmakers uh, trying uh, and not succeeding to fully repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, there have been reports that Senate Majority Leader McConnell says they're planning to move on from repeal and replace. But let's talk about more about the impact of this repeal of the individual mandate and the effect that has. That's right. That's going to start in 2019, next year that the fine element, the, the amount of the assessment of getting, of assessing you for a fine is going to go away. So the requirement's still there, but the fine disappears. So that's kind of an oddity. But the thought is, if that is what happens, and it's, that's, you know, what's going to happen now unless it's reversed, the Congressional Budget Office, which is like the official scorekeeper in Washington, predicts that 13 million more people would lose their coverage at the end of the decade, the 10 years after that's enacted, and premiums would go up at least 10% just due to the elimination of the mandate. So if those things happen, what could occur is if people are not required to buy insurance, you may have the healthier, uh, the sickest people rather stay in the system. Healthier people decide if I'm not going to get fined for it, I'm not going to buy it. And what's happening as a result of that is you have some states like Maryland, for example, that are looking at putting in their own individual mandate. And these tend to be states that are very supportive of the Affordable Care Act, that run their own online marketplace or exchanges where people purchase coverage. So that is one uh, avenue that some states are uh, looking into. But the thought is, from analyst uh, viewpoint, is that this is not a good thing for the Affordable Care Act. It could cause premiums to spike because if you don't have healthy people balancing the expenses of the sick people, then prices increase. And so advocates of the Affordable Care Act were very upset about this development. And you see insurers uh, um, pulling out of, of, of the plans that states are offering, like here in Connecticut. Well, that's happened. That actually happened even before this passed. And that's another thing to watch is that insurers will stay in a marketplace if they think they can make money. And in some marketplaces, insurers have been very successful with the Affordable Care Act and others they have not. And so since the online marketplaces, the exchanges went into place in 2014, along with the subsidies that help people who qualify based on income purchase their coverage, that's where the insurers has been very interesting to watch. Not always, but often. The urban markets tend to have more choices. The rural markets tend to have fewer. And insurers are still 
picking and choosing marketplaces, and they can even vary within a state, which is fascinating to watch to see how many insurers are offering insurance here, how many offer there, what are the prices, what are the plan co- you know, offerings, that kind of thing. It's, it's been a shifting dynamic. Mary Agnes Carey, Senior Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thank you for your perspective and analysis. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also, Dr. Suzanne Lagarde, CEO of Fairhaven Community Healthcare. Uh, This is a federally qualified uh, community health center in the New Haven area. She's in D.C. as one of the guests of the Connecticut delegation, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lagarde, for joining us. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up, we're going to take your calls next. What do you want to hear tonight from the president? Are you planning to watch? Tell us why or why not. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. No one knows for sure what President Trump will talk about at his first State of the Union address tonight. Listen to the speech live on WNPR at 9 p.m. with anchored coverage from NPR News. Now, news reports have highlighted immigration and infrastructure spending as two topics that Mr. Trump expected to focus on. What do you want to hear from him? Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining us by phone now is uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Uh, Welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, what do you want to hear from the president tonight? Well, I'm, where to begin? <laughs> honestly, yeah, honestly, I have low expectations, uh, but um, I expect he will talk about the immigration plan that he's sent to Congress. It's a skeleton of a plan, and for many of us, it's uh, woefully insufficient. But uh, to the extent that he's finally realized that we need to have a pathway to citizenship. Dreamers, that's important. I would love for him to talk about, you know, our moral obligation to protect these kids who came here when they were three or four years old, who are now teenagers or in their twenties, um, and not just talk about the political deal that he wants to make um, in order to get his border wall passed. Uh, so, you know, that would be important to me. Uh, I've been working with the Trump administration for a year now on this issue of Buy American to the extent he's going to make the case for massive increased funding for the Department of Defense. I hope he also talks about the importance of making sure that that money gets spent on American manufacturers. That's definitely a policy proposal that could get bipartisan uh, support. That, that would be at the top of my wish list. Let's talk more about uh, immigration. It can be uh, confusing to follow all the developments. Uh, especially, um, I know you're in Washington, but for the rest of us here, I know that the White House has a plan. Then we're also seeing a report about a bipartisan group. The Problem Solvers Caucus have a, has a plan uh, to help uh, these uh, undocumented students uh, be able to, to stay in this country and, and work legally. But it's also tied to the border wall funding as well. Well, the president would like to use uh, these children, uh, they're young adults now, 700,000 uh, all across the country, as a political bargaining chip in order to get funding for his wall. He has apparently asked for about $26 billion. Now, the reason he's doing that is that uh, there is broad public support amongst Republicans and Democrats to give these kids a chance to stay in the country. There is not broad public support for his border wall. In fact, the communities that live along the border have raised the most significant objections. Uh, so, you know, that's the reason that he has tied the two together. 
I wish that we did the popular part of immigration reform, which is uh, protecting these uh, dreamers, uh, and set aside the unpopular part of immigration reform, which is the militarization of our border with Mexico, uh, a decision I think we would regret in future generations. Uh, One of the recipients of of DACA here in Connecticut is Carolina Bortoletto, also a member of Connecticut Students for a Dream. She's joining us by phone now. Carolina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, We've talked to you in the past. Uh, You're a DACA recipient. How worried about you? uh, How worried about your future are you? Uh, When is your status uh, up? Well, my DACA status expires um, next year, 2019. So I have a, a little bit of time yet, but I know plenty of other people who, you know, they're very worried right now. They already lost their status or they're going to be losing their status um, pretty soon. And uh, we've been hearing a lot that, you know, Congress has until March to come up with a solution. But the reality is that they don't really because every day uh, there's about 120 uh, DACA recipients who lose their status. So the urgency in the community is really now and we can't really wait until March. Uh, Senator Murphy's on the phone with us. Uh, what do you want to see uh, he and his colleagues do in Washington, uh, Carolina? Well, we want to see, you know, push for the DREAM Act because that's a solution that, you know, has been brought up and it's bipartisan. And I know that both Senator Murphy and Senator Bumatalki in Connecticut did vote um, in favor uh, against ending the shutdown because it didn't include... Uh, you know, a solution on the DREAM Act and immigrant use. So we do appreciate the support of Senator Murphy here in Connecticut. And more senators need to do the same thing and, you know, stand strong and hold the line, I guess, in the pressure for a solution for immigrant use. Uh, Carolina, you know uh, as well as anyone that there are uh, members, uh, there are Americans in this country uh, that uh, don't believe that uh, undocumented youth, uh, despite your circumstances, uh, should be in this country. Uh, What do you say to them? Well, I say that, you know, I think 85% of Americans do support something like the DREAM Act to allow immigrant youth to stay here. And, you know, usually when that many people support an issue, Congress is able to act on something and do something about it. But because immigration is such a political issue, they haven't been able, they just haven't acted on the issue. So my message is that you know, it's time for Congress to listen to the people and find a solution. Carolina Bortoletto, again, as co-founder of Connecticut Students for a Dream, a DACA recipient. Carolina, thanks for joining us. I wanted to go back to uh, Chris Murphy again, Connecticut's U.S. Senator. Uh, we were talking about uh, immigration uh, being one of the, the issues that President Trump may talk about tonight at the State of the Union. Infrastructure as well. Uh, what are some of the, what is your response to, uh, we've been hearing about uh, President Trump's uh, plan for infrastructure. Uh, he'd promised $1 trillion, uh, but we're hearing more like $200 million. Uh, What are some of your uh, cause for concern there? Well, we had a big forum in Bridgeport uh, just uh, a few days ago talking about the uh, potential uh, for Trump's infrastructure plan in Connecticut. The worry is that uh, he is going to propose a very small amount of federal funding uh, and require that uh, the states and localities pick up the rest. Traditionally, the federal government picks up about 80 percent of the costs of big infrastructure projects. States and localities pick up 20 percent. The rumor is the president's going to propose flipping that and having the federal government only put up 20 percent of the costs and requiring states and localities to put up uh, the other 80 percent. 
event. That's particularly unfair for Connecticut, uh, in part because many people use our roads to get to and from New York and Boston, Washington, D.C., uh, and so to require us to spend all of uh, the money, 80% of the money, to upkeep 84 and 95 and 91 um, just makes absolutely no sense. So um, if it's only $200 you know, billion dollars, uh, and the other $800 billion is going to have to be picked up by states like Connecticut, um, that's not a very good deal. And that's our worry uh, from the Connecticut delegation's perspective. Well, I've been hearing reports as well that one of the ideas being floated is to, to pay for uh, these projects, uh, infrastructure projects, is an uh, increase in the federal gasoline tax. That doesn't sound like something that either side of the aisle would support. Well, they should support it. Um, I've uh, long been a proponent of increasing the federal gas tax. I have a bipartisan proposal to do it with Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. I mean, we can't live in this fantasy world in which everybody wants to spend more money on infrastructure, but nobody's willing to pay for it. If you just borrow the money, then it's going to be my kids and my grandkids that are going to end up paying the bill. Uh, I've been encouraged that President Trump has seemed open to increasing the federal gas tax because the alternative is to just put it on our credit card. We, you know, we need um, hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure work just to maintain state of good repair, never mind actually reduce travel times to and from places like New York and Boston. Uh, and if anybody has a better way to pay for it, I'm willing to look at it. But the gas tax, which has not been changed since 1993 and is taking in far less money than anybody ever would have predicted is still the best way in the short run to pay for infrastructure. I hope that's still on the table. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about the State of the Union address tonight, uh, infrastructure, immigration, uh, possibly topics that the president will be uh, talking about tonight. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We're speaking with uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Uh, Joining us now is Doug Hausladen. He's actually New Haven's Director of Transportation. Doug, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Obviously, uh, transportation on your mind. Uh, What do you want to hear from the president, and what's your, uh, I guess, your perspective on um, how the money will trickle down if uh, the administration does propose and it goes through this $200 billion uh, and what that would leave New Haven uh, to come up with? Well, that certainly is not nearly enough. Uh, Our U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has outlined a much more ambitious need for our infrastructure Again, as Senator Murphy mentioned, just as a state of good repair, we're going to need more than that. I think for New Haven, we're looking a lot at, um, at airport investments and FRA investments. And Mayor Harp continually is talking about digital divide and the access to the 21st century economy. I think with the conversation around leveraging private sector, you've seen a lot of P3 public-private partnership opportunities inside the smart city and inside the fiber to the home or gigabit Internet space. So I think President Trump uh, is, is going to find a, a receptive Mayor Harp with respect to uh, opportunities to leverage private investment in our, in our Internet. If the administration is over-reliant on uh, states coming up uh, with a lot of the money for these projects, uh, how does that bode well for uh, Connecticut, where we have lots of of budget issues? Uh, The special transportation fund is uh, practically broke. Uh, Where will that leave uh, Connecticut municipalities, including New Haven? Well, it leaves us in a tough spot. And and we were in a tough spot before the tonight's speech, and we're going to be in a tough spot uh, tomorrow as well. We have to take care of our own Connecticut needs with our special transportation fund drying up. This is just not a way to run a government. And every day we're being forced to make terrible decisions uh, between maintenance and cutting off our space, uh, our nose to spite our face. 
I think for us, we really would like to see a vision for investment in uh, multimodal transportation, investment in our Hartford Line system, in our Shoreline East system, in our Metro North system. Getting an hour train to New York is extremely important, and it's actually very achievable if we continue to fix our bridges uh, down in Fairfield County. We're hearing uh, lawmakers again talking about uh, putting up uh, tolls, uh, but again, uh, in a state that needs a lot of cash to deal with deficits, uh, is there enough political will to um, have tolls to only go towards uh, these very needed transportation projects and not the general fund? Yeah, as Senator Murphy mentioned, uh, you know, of, of course we have to raise our gas tax, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce said that we should raise it by a quarter on the federal level. That is only going to be a short-term fix, but we need some short-term fixes. I'm proud that the Democrats and, and led by State Representative Guerrera have, have introduced another bill to, to, to have a vote on tolls because, of course, that makes sense in the long run to manage our congestion and also to, uh, to raise revenue streams. These are things that we must do. And as, as Senator Murphy mentioned, uh, anybody who thinks that you can have a free lunch in this country is, is sorely mistaken, and their children and grandchildren will be paying for that lunch for years to come. Doug Hausladen, again, is the New Haven's Director of Transportation. Thanks for calling in, Doug. Thank you. Uh, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Pat's calling from New Haven. Pat, go ahead. Yes, I, uh, I agree with Senator Murphy's uh, uh, discussion about raising the federal gas tax, but I also think Connecticut's behind the curve uh, with other states in uh, the tolls. I mean, every other state around has tolls in the mail. Have uh, aggressive enforcement for truck, uh, uh, overweight way stations, etc. And we we are we don't seem to be doing very much in that regard to uh, support our own infrastructure. So I mean I, I definitely think that should be fast tracked. And, and another thing that a lot of states do is they do uh, camera violations for speeding. And and Connecticut's been uh, negligent in not moving forward with that technology as well. Well, Pat, thank you uh, for your call. I know uh, uh, Senator Murphy just has a couple minutes left. I wanted uh, to go back to you. If you're still there, uh, you mentioned uh, trade. Uh, what are some of your ideas in terms of, of what the administration is putting forth, uh, concerns about uh, ending NAFTA and uh, impact on Connecticut manufacturers, Senator Murphy? Well, you know, there's no doubt that NAFTA has sucked uh, many jobs away from Connecticut. You just, you know, drive through our urban core and you see the, you know, hulking factories that are shut down because of foreign competition. Now, everybody understands that globalization is inevitable. Um, you know, we're not going to make the kind of things, uh, the low value added products that we made uh, in Connecticut uh, in the future. Um, but these trade agreements were really written without any, you know, viable means of enforcement. Uh, the environmental provisions and the labor provisions are routinely violated. So I'm actually supportive of Trump's decision to go back and renegotiate uh, NAFTA. Um, I think at this point it would probably be cataclysmic to pull out of the agreement. Uh, but I think he'd have a lot of support, uh, especially on the Democratic side, if he was able to successfully renegotiate some of those provisions. Um, before you go, you did uh, sign with colleagues a letter calling for Mr. Trump to use the Buy American Standards. Uh, walk us through that letter. It, it, it's it's just a really simple concept. When we spend money on um, uh, purchases by the federal government, whether it be steel for bridges or it's uh, jet uh, engines for the military, we should buy things from uh, American companies. And increasingly, the Buy America law, which has been on the books since the 1930s, is being 
um, violated. Uh, there's been uh, several independence uh, surveys that show that the uh, military in particular, but sometimes the Department of Transportation, uh, is violating the Buy America law and uh, outsourcing to foreign companies. We lose a lot of jobs in Connecticut when that happens, and I've joined together with a, a bunch of uh, Republicans and Democrats, actually, to push forward legislation, to send a letter you referenced to the president, making sure that if we do spend a lot more money on infrastructure in an infrastructure bill, uh, that that money gets spent on uh, U.S. companies. That'll be really good news for Connecticut manufacturers. Chris Murphy is a U.S. Senator uh, from Connecticut. Uh, we want to thank you again for calling in, Senator Murphy. Thanks a lot. Uh, we're, today we're talking on Where We Live about the uh, upcoming State of the Union address by President Trump. We wanted to hear from you about what you wanted to hear from the president, what issues arise to the top uh, in terms of the agenda that the president uh, will have uh, in 2018. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. On the phone with us now is Edward Ford Jr. He's actually a newly elected uh, Republican member of the Middletown School Board. Ed, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, Ed, one of the reasons we wanted to invite you on is we often don't hear your your perspective um, from a, a, a young African-American man in the Republican Party. Uh, uh, tell us about um, your uh, interest and entry into politics, and what do you want to hear from the president tonight? Uh, well, you know, I first got tuned into politics really um, in my senior year of high school. I ran for uh, senior class vice president. I went to Middletown High School, and I uh, uh, was able to win the position. And from there, it really opened up my eyes to a whole new perspective of public service, of giving back, of community service and, and government. And so I wanted to continue that on. I didn't want it to just end there in high school. So, you know, uh, go, going to college and uh, going to various different universities, uh, I decided to come back and, uh, and, and, and spend some time here in, in, in Middletown and, and devote myself to the people, you know, devote myself to, to the school system and, and, uh, that I came up through myself. You know, I went through a lot of the different problems and issues that uh, the kids today are still going through. So I believe that I have an insight and a different perspective to provide in that manner. And, uh, you know, I really I, I thank God for, for blessing me to be in this position today. Um, you're a member of a party, um, you know, that many support uh, President Trump. Uh, his comments don't always aren't always inclusive of uh, minority groups in this country. Um, how do you reconcile that? Um, well, I would say that, you know, a lot of the times, of course, um, there may be things that are said uh, that, that people, uh, you know, may not expect or, or may expect, but aren't, aren't always uh, ideal and, and uh, aren't always something that you would want to hear. But nonetheless, whoever the president of the United States is, I sincerely pray for that person because I know that person has the hardest job in the world. And I want the president of the United States to succeed because if that person succeeds, the nation succeeds. And that's something that I believe that every American should want. Uh, what do you want the president to talk about tonight in terms of uh, moving the country forward, including, uh, you know, people in Middletown, Connecticut? I would like to hear a more bipartisan tone. I definitely would like to hear um, that because I know that lasting progress happens when people on both sides of the aisle come together to uh, create that progress. And, uh, you know, we, we, we see that uh, nowadays there's a lot of uh, a lot of more, you know, 
polarization and division. And what I want to see is more people coming together from different sides of the aisle, working together. I want to see that uh, on the national level. I want to see that on, uh, on the state level and on the local level. Edward Ford Jr. is a Middletown, Connecticut resident, a newly elected Republican member of the school board there. Ed, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshar. We're going to take a break from the State of the Union address again uh, tonight at 9. Instead, we're going to, after the break, focus on clean energy. Reporter Jan Ellen Spiegel with the Connecticut Mirror just wrote an in-depth piece on where Connecticut stands on clean energy. It may surprise you. That's after the break. Coming up Thursday on Where We Live, Catherine Smith is Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Economic and Community Development. She's going to stop by our studios for an update on the state's economy and manufacturing workforce, plus a conversation with Goodwin College President Mark Scheinberg. How is the school training the next generation of manufacturing employees? You can learn about that and join the conversation on Thursday. Uh, Now, has Connecticut lost its clean energy edge? A recent story in the Connecticut Mirror explores that question. I want to welcome to the show on the phone now Jan Ellen Spiegel, a reporter who covers energy, environment, and climate for the Connecticut Mirror. Jan, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Uh, A very in-depth piece, a very extensive uh, and important story that you've you've, uh, uh, reported on recently for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, You look at this question that Connecticut was once a leader in clean energy projects, uh, and that's no longer the case. What happened? Well, a lot of people point to a lot of different things uh, concerning what might have happened. A lot of the focus is on the current budget situation. But I think you have to take a little bit of a look back to where we started. And where we started was in 2011 with the beginning of the Malloy administration. What happened at that time is the old Department of Environmental Protection was completely remade into the new Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, DEEP, that we know of now. And along with that uh, reimagination came... Uh, a dozen or more major programs that helped put clean energy into the mix and pushed it forward tremendously. Things like uh, a whole new way of doing commercial low and clean energy uh, uh, projects. Uh, The Green Bank was formed at that time as a way to leverage um, ratepayer money into uh, more money that would enable more to be done in in terms of uh, clean energy programs, especially the residential solar program. There was a program called Lead by Example, which was going to help state buildings revamp their energy efficiency and thereby save money. And at the same time, we had some very, very ambitious environmental goals. We wanted, we had the Global Warming Solutions Act, which required greenhouse gases be reduced uh, 80% below 2001 standards by 2050. And we had uh, a requirement for a certain amount of uh, clean energy being purchased, renewable energy being purchased, 20% by 2020. Uh, And those things got underway. 
In the meantime, uh, other states in the region began to catch up with us, and that's kind of where we are today. New York has far surpassed us in terms of the types of programs they've put into effect and the types of really interesting initiatives that they've uh, masterminded. Massachusetts Mm -hmm. has uh, taken the initiative across all kinds of things. Including offshore, offshore wind, wind yeah. yeah. And we are not, uh, we're not quite there anymore. If you look at a recent um, uh, chart done by Acadia Center, which is a environmental uh, group in, in the Northeast, they've run through close to two dozen topics, and in only one of them is, is uh, Connecticut still a leader, and that has to do with electric vehicle incentives, everything else we've been surpassed on. Now, Jan, how much of the the budget problems, the consistent budget deficits year after year uh, since 2011, how has that impacted uh, Connecticut's uh, goals for clean energy projects, letting these other New England states surpass what we've been doing? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Some people feel that uh, money should be spent on very, very pointed human service type programs, feeding people, getting health care to people, those sorts of things. But other folks look at the money that has been taken from clean energy, renewable energy, energy efficiency programs, and that happened Mm -hmm. tens and hundreds of millions of dollars worth were taken out in the last budget as essentially... So I heard someone use the term before, cutting off our nose to spite our face. We're not – that money was being used for programs that in their process many people feel were also creating jobs, creating industries that would help the budget picture, as well as providing human service type um, support to folks who now lo- no longer could get it. Let me give you an example. If you are a low-income person in Connecticut and you have trouble, say, paying your electric bill, there are energy efficiency programs, solar programs that are geared to helping you do something about that and lowering your energy bills. Without the fun- with- Without the funding that's now been taken away, you will no longer have that opportunity or have less of an opportunity to do that. So instead of accessing funds to help you with your overall energy bill, you may now need to access some other type of federal funds, state funds to help you pay for your heat or pay for something else. So it becomes a false equivalent, uh, some people feel, if you're looking at the budget situation as having an impact on the energy situation. Where do you draw that line? I think that's an interesting question to be looked at. Now, the General Assembly has an Energy and Technology Committee. Uh, What is their role in informing their colleagues about the importance of these programs, the importance of this investment um, that will have long-term return? Well, I mean, and you've just said it, long-term return. Long-term return. Um, these these folks need to th- to think through 
some very, very complicated uh, policies and some very, very complicated technology. And they have to think out many steps like a chess player would. There are those who believe the Energy and Technology Committee has not done a good job of informing people, uh, even their own members, about how these interconnections in the energy world work. And that if you don't pay now, you're probably going to pay later. Um, and they've they've come under a certain amount of fire on this. As a result, there has been a renewed effort to do a little bit more education among legislators broadly to explain how taking the ratepayer funds that were taken in this last session away from the, in particular, two entities that use them and using them to plug budget holes is essentially taking away your ability to help people save money, move into a clean energy sector, um, which in the long run will save them even more money and will help the state in terms of its climate goals and um, potentially help the state create businesses out of what they were doing as part of the energy initiatives. Let's be clear, it's complicated, and um, there have been, in addition to the budget diversion here, has been the millstone diversion. Mm -hmm. We've now spent a couple of years debating uh, whether we should in some way incentivize millstone, the nuclear power plant, to stay in business, and that has sucked a lot of energy out of the room, uh, pardon the pun here, Um, and there is an agreement now to potentially let Millstone participate uh, uh, with other clean energy sources uh, to bid for an energy contract. Whether that will solve the problem, whether that will tamp down that diversion, we'll have to see. Um, But uh, potentially it won't. Jen Allen Spiegel's reporter who covers energy, environment, and climate for the Connecticut Mirror. We're talking with her today after her in-depth story about the future of clean energy projects in Connecticut. Connecticut once being a leader, uh, not so much now. Other states surpassing us in terms of the kinds of investment they're putting towards clean energy. Uh, Jan, we just have a couple more minutes. Uh, something that people have been waiting for is this uh, long overdue report, this clean energy strategy. Uh, when's that coming out? What's going to be in it? Well, the Comprehensive Energy Strategy was first done, very first one was in 2013. Um, It set forth a um, a blueprint for the future. At that time, it was very much focused on conversion to natural gas. That elicited a huge outcry from the environmental community that we were going to get too invested in natural gas and not really move over to the truly clean energy sources. In the end, a lot of that conversion didn't happen, partly because the prices of oil plunged so dramatically that natural gas was no longer so much cheaper. This time, the energy strategy was supposed to be revised uh, three years later. Uh, It was supposed to have been available to legislators a year and a half ago. There was a draft put out late last year, and we are awaiting in the next couple of weeks the uh, latest incarnation of that. The draft had already uh, 
got environmentalists a little bit upset because the the draft had sought to cap uh, solar power on individual homes. It's my understanding that that cap will be gone. <laughs> there was enough of outrage over that that um, that cap will be gone, and there will continue to be an emphasis on solar power for individual homes, as well as solar power that goes directly into the grid. Um, there is also likely to be a more stringent, um, uh, pr- more aggressive uh, push for renewable energy that is recently based on the Governor's Council for Climate Change put in place an interim target for greenhouse gas emissions. They need to be reduced by uh, 45% in 2030. That's a pretty steep climb. So the the use of renewable power will have to um, somehow mirror that. One of the other things that's happened in the last couple of years is this push for offshore wind. And um, there are vast tracts, something like 630,000 acres already leased off New York and um, uh, New England. Connecticut has the potential to buy into that wind. Some see this as a very, very important move on behalf of Connecticut because it will help them get into the onshore, offshore uh, wind game. That is to say, provide staging areas, provide manufacturing, provide uh, the kinds of business uh, backbone that an offshore wind will need in the region, and there's a pretty big clamor that Connecticut needs to get on board with this pretty quickly if they want to capture a piece of the industry that will help build the economy. Jan, we're, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. <laughs> it's a very complicated but uh, in-depth uh, story that you did. We're going to tweet it out uh, at where we live. Also, look, link it on our website. But I want to thank Jan Ellen Spiegel again, a reporter who covers energy, environment, and climate for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, thanks for your perspective. Happy to be here. Uh, Carmen Baskoff produced today's show. Special thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf and senior producer Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>